gentlemen, boys and girls, monster kids of all ages, welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to Monster Kid Radio, the home of classic monsters, modern talk, and I'm excited to have you on board this week. Now, I do sound a little differently than I normally do, and that's because I'm recording my intro. Well, I'm not in the studio. I've actually got my lavalier mic on, and I'm driving right now to the Joy Cinema. And uh, I'm going to be going to a screening of, well, I'll tell you here in a second. But first, I want to tell you about the music that I will eventually be putting over the background of my talking here once I do get back to the studio. And that is that the song is called Monster Beat. It is from the band The Viking Surfers. It's from their album Greetings from The Viking Surfers. You can find them at thevikingsurfers.bandcamp.com. They gave us permission to play their music here on the show. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. And of course, you'll hear the song again at the end of this episode. Now, here's what we've got going on this week. We, of course, have Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Story. We, of course, have Kenny's Look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And this time around, the movie that we're talking about this week is something that was featured in Famous Monsters of Filmland, so we don't have to do another What You're Waiting For, Derek, or some other spinoff. We're going to do a traditional look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Well, what movie is Kenny going to tell us about? What movie are we talking about here on the show? Well, the main discussion will be with author David Annandale, and we'll be talking about the Boris Karloff film, The Devil Commands. And I got to tell you, this one is one of my absolute favorite Boris Karloff films. Now, I don't want to spoil what we're going to talk about here in a little bit, but I will warn you, there are significant spoilers that he and I bring up during our conversation. David Annandale was a great guy to chat with. First time that he's been on the show, but I've been wanting to have him on the podcast for quite some time. So I'm really grateful that he made time to make it happen. And well, I hope you dig the conversation. But that's not all that's happening in this episode. Let's see, I've already mentioned Kenny. I've already mentioned Professor Frenzy. What else is happening? Well, I'm driving and I'm driving to the Joy Cinema for Weird Wednesday because they are showing one of my absolute favorite public domain films, one of my absolute favorite films from the 1960s, a movie that has no right to be as good as it is considering who made it and how it was made. I'm talking about 1962's Carnival of Souls. This was something that I kind of threw together at the last minute. I wasn't planning on talking about Carnival of Souls in this episode, and you're probably not going to hear me talk about it too much because I'm meeting a couple of friends there, people that you've heard here on the show. Remember when we used to do the Weird Wednesday report when we had Jeff Pollier call in all the time? Well, he says he's going to be there. Plus, Dominique Lamsey's. She loves this movie, and when I was chatting with her earlier today on Facebook, she said she remembered that she's never seen this movie on the big screen, so yeah, she plans on being there too. Fingers and tentacles crossed that they're actually going to be there, and I can chat with them about the film. They've both seen the movie, so, you know, I'm interested to hear their take on it, uh, both what they think about the movie and what they think about seeing it on the big screen at one of the most fun theaters I've ever been at, and that, of course, is the Joy Cinema. Big thanks to Jeff Punk Rock Martin for always well, showing us a good time on Weird Wednesday. And yeah, you know what? I want to focus on driving. I want to focus on getting there. So I'm going to turn off the recorder. I'm going to let you listen to a little bit more of the Viking surfers. And uh, yeah, we'll get into everything right after this. Uh, 
everybody. This is Heidi Bennett of Vibrant Visionaries Podcast and Spinal Tap Minute Podcast. And this is a quick little promo for an upcoming event, and it's Movies by Minutes Portland. We're going to be meeting up in Portland, Oregon on Saturday, August 24th for live podcasting, games. On the stage, we've got the Movies by Minutes guys from Star Wars Minute. Actually, it's going to be a mashup of Star Wars Minute and the Godfather Minute. The newly pod game, Rick from Mad Max Minute is going to be hosting that. Vibrant Visionaries, where I'm going to have the fellas from Open the Podcast Doors, Hal, <laughs> which I think you could probably figure out which podcast that is. And then just added the cast and the furious. So lots of live podcasting and some games going on. Tickets are $20. It's a family friendly event. It's really a social event. It's not just for the movies by minutes listener, but the podcast listener and fan alike. Go to moviesbyminutes.com slash Portland. That's moviesbyminutes.com slash Portland to buy tickets. Again, tickets are 20 bucks. See you in Portland. The mind of man is the servant of evil. Instruments of torture are always much the same wherever one goes. Our ancestors had imaginations that were truly diabolical. The Virgin of Nuremberg, the most efficacious instrument of torture. The most desirable woman. Terrible punisher of the Virgin of Nuremberg. than his prediction of space travel in Things to Come. More imaginative than his laser beams in War of the Worlds. More frightening than his warning of nuclear holocaust in The Time Machine. From H.G. Wells, history's most credible prophet, now comes his most incredible story, Empire of the Ants. The terrifying tale of civilization fighting for survival against armies of giant ants 10 feet tall who control the human population by drugging them into submission. And man, the master, becomes man, the slave. Joan Collins, Robert Lansing, H.G. Wells, Empire of the Ants, from American International Pictures. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Empire of the Ants. They shall inherit the Earth sooner than you think. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. 
my name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is Island of Death. It is from the Vault of Horror number 13, the June-July issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Harvey Kurtzman. So sit back, relax, while I tell this island tragedy. Steve was piloting a small plane in the Pacific with his friend and co-pilot Alec. Something went wrong with the plane's engine. They were forced to try a landing on an uncharted island they spotted. Sadly, they couldn't reach the island and crashed into the sea. Steve was able to swim ashore, but he couldn't find Alec anywhere. He made his way along the shore and spotted a castle at the top of a cliff. He made his way to the pile and banged on the door. The residents found him collapsed on their doorstep. When Steve awoke, he found he was given clean clothes and a hot bath. He met his benefactor, Count Alvar Cabeza. They sat down to a lavish meal, and the Count told Steve about his adventures hunting all around the world. He showed off all of his dead animal trophies. He fancied himself a master hunter, a killer of all kinds of animals. But the one animal he had never hunted was a human, and he wanted to match wits with Steve. He gave Steve a 12-hour head start, and then at dawn, the Count would begin to hunt him with a crossbow. Now remember, Steve was a pilot and no slouch in the game of life and death. He found some parts of his plane had washed ashore, and he made a hidden pit with sharpened wooden stakes at the bottom. He also ran a razor wire across a path through the woods. When dawn came, the Count and his manservant, Mulak, and their dogs came racing down the path. Steve scrambled into the brush. Mulak raced straight into the razor wire and had his neck sliced for his trouble. The Count took hold of his dog's leashes and continued in the woods. He came upon the hidden pit and was able to save himself, but the dogs weren't so lucky. They ended up on the business end of the stakes. The Count declared he had no need of dogs, and he turned out to be a master tracker. He was able to follow Steve's movements through the woods and faced him with a crossbow raised for the kill. Suddenly a gunshot rang out. It was Alec. He survived the crash and stumbled upon the scene just in time. The shot hit the Count in the arm, and as he tried to escape, he stumbled into a nest of jungle wasps. They soon overcame him, and when the two airmen found him, he had been stung to death. The pair found the boat belonging to the Count and sailed off into the sunset. Funny that the Count had hunted big game, but was killed by a little insect. The end. I hope you enjoyed that fetching story. This isn't my favorite type of horror story. It's more like a serial killer adventure tale, but it's well done. We have seen this man-hunting man story many times, but the surprise here was that the ultimate death was by wasp nest. Very clever. Stories like this remind me of the very different world that was 1950s America. There were still many uncharted or at least sloppily charted corners of the world. Mysterious islands, hidden forests and valleys. Now we could probably find Street View on that island. Also, it's funny that they made the bad guy a count. He isn't a vampire, but still, European nobility sure had a bad rap back in the day. Kurtzman's art is, as always, very clear and tells the story very well. There are a number of fantastic panels. One is Steve's face as the Count is closing in on him. His face is sprayed with shadows that show his fear. 
Another is how the count is portrayed, often like a crazy man. The presentation is very effective. If you're interested in a copy of The Vault of Horror Volume 1, this book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can find me on my podcast, The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics, and Bat Books for Beginners, where we talk about historical Batman and Bat Family comics. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy, and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find The Professor Frenzy Show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy. Do you love role-playing or tabletop games? Do you love Monster of the Week shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Supernatural? Do you wish you could find a podcast that combines all of those things? Well, look no further. Thornvale is a narrative-driven actual play podcast following three monster hunters as they fight to keep a small town in Florida safe from the creatures that threaten it. It's full of action. So do you actually say that? Yes, I'm actually going to say that. I'll be like, I'll distract him, you get him. And so I'm going to try... Okay, Bjorn, how are you going to get him? Um, Comedy. I just got this image in my head, now this is me, not Sammy, of this dragon that was collecting materials for a chicken farm. (laughs) 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 And truly awful dice rolls. Nope, another three. That's that's my my second three in a row. Oh my gosh. We're killing this thing. If that sounds like it's up your alley, then look us up wherever you listen to podcasts. It's so scary, we dare you to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party, the first movie ever filmed in horror vision, Hollywood's latest miracle. You'll scream as fiendish movie monsters actually become alive, then crash right out of the screen, go into the audience, and carry screaming girls from their seats right back into the picture to become part of the movie. We warn you, horror vision is not 3D. The movie monsters become real flesh and blood. Be sure to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party in horror vision and color. Come into the cave of the bat demons. They are waiting for you. They are longing for your blood. And they hope you'll drop in to join them in horror of the blood monsters. And you, a ghastly journey into the weird world of the undead. You will feel your flesh crawl and tingle as creeping creatures slither out of the night to satisfy their unholy cravings. But I warn you, don't come to see horror of the blood monsters alone. Bring a friend. Bring a fiend. Bring your nerve. Horror of the blood monsters in weird color. Rated G. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's movie was featured in a five-page article in issue 46 from September of 1967, The Devil Commands. The article was later reprinted in issues 84 and 89. The article includes nine photos, all with the famous electric Iron Maiden prop the movie is known for. The article starts with this look at the literary origins of the film. The year was 1940. Diabolical forces of war were wrecking Europe. Columbia announced that it would make a terrifying Karloff film called The Devil Said No, based on a novel of chivalry incitement by William F. Sloan, the book The Edge of Running Water. 
the mystery horror tale which follows the adventures of a rising young psychologist in a remote farmhouse. Against a normal enough background, events begin to take on shapes of terror with a tinge of the unknown. A woman dies. Julian Blair, physicist, inventor, disappears. There is a chill wind blowing, hints of things beyond the borderland of the natural, and are the strangely believable researches of a half-mad electrophysicist looking for a way to communicate with the dead. It was as if Edgar Allan Poe had written one of his horror stories in the style of Ernest Hemingway, reported one critic of Sloane's previous book, To Walk the Night, and here was another even spookier. Imperceptibly, the events diverge from the comfort of ordinary existence and become disquieting with a touch of strangeness for which no name can be found. Of To Walk the Night, later done on TV, it was said, A most skillfully imparted gust of chill from somewhere else. An admirable excursion into another dimension altogether. A journey into anxiety and fear. Two strange deaths a most exciting batch of super science, and a fantastic solution. 20th century incredulity is forgotten during the breathless tale. And the edge of running water was even better received. Cold chills and thrills combined in a most unusual item for those who crave a touch of the unknown. A bit of wrestling with things beyond human ken and footprints pointing to foul play. Steel yourself for the iron hand of horror, the public was warned. You'll thrill with terror as Boris Karloff, the master of blood-curdling horror, pierces the veil beyond the grave. What forbidden secrets lie hidden on the other side of the tomb? Will man ever penetrate the plane that separates the living from the dead? Is there any way of communicating with those who have passed on? In The Devil Commands, these unsolvable mysteries are forthrightly attacked. Boris Karloff put his best film footage forward as Dr. Julian Blair, who took a giant step ahead advancing an entirely new theory, and creating an incredible electrical machine which helped him probe the weirdest mysteries of death's domain. The article continues and concludes with a synopsis of the film. Here is how the thrilling climax was described. It has been over a quarter of a century since the editor saw The Devil Commands. Some of you may have been more fortunate to catch it on a Son of Shock revival on TV, but he still remembers with a rise of his hackles the turbulent conclusion of the picture. A long table with weird props surrounding it. Human forms encased like mummies in metal caskets. The whine and whir. The crackling and pulsating of retostats. Generators, coils, tubes, spark gaps as voltage, energy, and high-frequency radiation are forced to impossible heights. The bodies vibrate and strain in their metal cocoons. Gyrate and jitter, threatening to burst their bonds. Loose objects hurtle about the room as though in the grip of a hurricane. A titanic tornadic force tugs the occupants forward as though into a fourth dimensional vortex. When the very fabric of space seems about to be ripped asunder, there is a thunderous explosion. Dr. Blair is dead. He tampered in God's domain, meddled with things man was meant to leave alone. A generation ago, in the pre-cryogenic age, they still had such superstitious notions. That's all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This is Kenny for MKR. We'll be back with more next week. Adios. Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. 
real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems, and his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural ghoulish and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. You will freeze as you watch a warped scientist become transformed into a godless beast when his bloody scalpel probes the forbidden secrets of a woman's flesh. In Atom Age Vampire, you will flame for the stark ritual of a beautiful girl's last searing dance as tragedy forever mars her loveliness, leaving her to face a world of terror. I give you my word that I will restore your face. Restore all your beauty. You will cringe as the demented doctor experiments with a girl's trusting innocence. But to possess the living miracle wrought by his twisted genius, he must forever sacrifice his soul to the cunning gods of evil. I'll transplant directly from another human being. A mad creature born of the atomic age, now shackled to a world of rotting bodies and violent death. A sadist. A criminal, a depraved animal, more ferocious than Jekyll, more monstrous than Frankenstein, more bloody than Dracula. Fire a volley through the window pane. You will gasp as lust and madness stalk the darkened screaming night in Atom Age Vampire. Forboding place of no return. Hercules in the haunted world. An unearthly world of eternal darkness. Ghostly kingdom of the undead demons of death. From these horrifying, hideous creatures of evil, Hercules and his friend must save their doomed kingdom and the women they love. Hercules wants something. He always wants something. But when I return, I'll never leave you again. This I promise you. Hercules and Theseus battle treacherous, monstrous forces of evil in the forbidden depths of a haunted underworld. I will serve you as your slave as long as you live. Save me. I beg Stop. You. It's a trap. Don't trust the shadows of Hades. <laughs> Nefarious fiendish Lyco, mastermind of terror, must be destroyed. Reg Park as the heroic Hercules in the haunted world.
This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. So Monster Kid Radio listeners, I know a lot of times I put the call out to have people on the show. I even have that survey on the website. You want to be a guest on Monster Kid Radio? Rest assured, I will eventually get to you because this week's guest, it's been almost exactly a year, I guess, uh, since I first started talking with him about having him come on to the show to talk about a movie. I'd like to welcome to Monster Kid Radio author David Annandale. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for your patience. I know I said it off mic. I'm going to say it here on the show for the record. Thanks for your patience and all the downtime it took to finally get you on the show. <laughs> oh, it's worth it. It's a real pleasure to be able to chat with you. Well, when I saw you post about a Boris Karloff film, I was like, I gotta have you on. And, you know, I haven't talked about Karloff enough on the show, as if there's any possibility of ever talking about Karloff enough. But, you know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the man is, well, the man. He is. He is. There's no doubt about that. I introduced you as an author. I want to let listeners know a little bit about what you do. I know you as being mostly associated with the Warhammer series of books. Yeah, so most of uh, my writing is with uh, the Black Library, so with both their Warhammer 40,000 and Warhammer Age of Sigmar lines, and the recently launched Warhammer Horror line, which we're certainly very excited about. So that's where most of my writing happens. I also am senior instructor in the uh, the Department of English Theater, Film, and Media at the University of Manitoba, so that's the the other hat I wear, my the, the day job, as it were. What's more fun? Oh, well, it's look at it this way. I get to teach a course this fall on American horror movies from the silent era to 1950. So that's a pretty good day job right there. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Can I, can I, can you do like a, de- a tele course with that? I'd love to, I'd like to sit in on that virtually. That sounds like fun. Oh, I, I'm really looking forward. It's been a couple of years in uh, coming and uh, that was the, uh, one of the other things I was doing uh, this summer is uh, watch, rewatching a bunch of films and finalizing the syllabus because there's always more films that you want to teach and you can squeeze into uh, one term and it's uh, you know, the usual weeping tears of blood trying to having to cut this film <laughs> or that film. But no, I want to do this too. And uh <laughs> agonizing is this the first time you've been able to kind of work the monster kid style of a, a film and, and just knowledge into what you teach no actually i've i've also taught uh, uh courses on the horror film generally european horror uh monster movies uh of all kinds uh end of the world movies science fiction fantasy uh i i get to do a lot of stuff that i I really enjoy teaching. So the writing side and the teaching side often go hand in hand. So cool. That is, that's awesome. I love it when people are able to, to work uh, th- this love for the kinds of movies that we talk about here on MKR into their more professional pursuits, whether it's writing, teaching, filmmaking, whatever. It's just amazing to hear and just makes me incredibly happy to live in the world that, that this is happening. <laughs> and, you know... I- yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel really, really lucky that you know, I'd like to go back and tell my uh, my 10 year old self, guess what you're going to be able to do. Right. <laughs> right. Honestly, you've been a fan of these types of movies 
well, since at least ten, then right? Yeah, I can I can actually date the 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 origin moment. I mean, I've loved monsters my entire life, uh, but I would say the Monster Kid Genesis was in March of 1976 when I picked up uh, Dennis Gifford's A Pictorial History of Horror Movies. Oh, okay. You know, the, the sacred text, and uh, that summer was when I bought my first issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Wow, uh, it was the one with uh, uh, the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong on the cover. That's when it officially began. I think I had my first Godzilla model kit before that. Uh, so, so Godzilla was the the gateway, right? Going from dinosaurs to Godzilla, and then that opened up. Uh, and then I picked up this book, and hey, there's pictures of Godzilla, and ooh, who are all these other guys? And uh, the uh, the 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 drug entered the system. <laughs> right on. Well, there are worse addictions to have. I think so. I think you're okay <laughs> there. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not kicking this one for love or money. I'm telling you that. There you go. <laughs> Well, I'll pass the uh, you just said about famous monsters off to Kenny since he does the uh, famous monsters of Filmland segment here on the show. Uh, I'm sure he'd love to hear about that and uh, now talk a little bit about that. But yeah, as far as you know, your background with this stuff, obviously it's influenced what you're doing now. And I'm so stoked and excited to have you here on the show because well, we've been friends on Facebook for a while, and to finally have a movie to talk about, I'm thrilled, man. Oh yeah, this is going to be fun. Yeah, but. There is something that we do with everybody that we have on the show before we get into the main conversation, and that's the game that we play we call the Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that, what style of monster movie, what kind of monster movie do you prefer, that sort of thing. It's really just a way to get to know each other better, conversation starters, icebreaker style type questions. There are no wrong answers. David, are you ready to play? I'm ready as I'll ever be. Okay, card number one here right off the top. Who else could have or should have played Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Oh, wow. That's a good one. As you start to think of all the people who did play it and did a wonderful job. Oh, you know what? Uh, suddenly thinking Jeremy Irons would have been an interesting uh, variant there. I mean, it, arguably, he kind of did in Dead Ringers. I guess his name comes to mind, too, because I've for decades I've thought if they ever did a biopic of Boris Karloff, he's the man to play Karloff. You know? So. Mm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, you're not the first person that I've heard say that about Karloff and and. and Jeremy Irons. Years ago, there was uh, a Karloff one-man show done about the life of Karloff, produced by Randy Bowser here in Oregon. It's an amazing show, and he's licensed it out to people if they want to perform it, that sort of thing. And he's also said that Jeremy Irons would be wonderful in the role of Karloff, just kind of portraying his life, going through all the things he went through, getting to Hollywood, and that sort of thing. So you're not alone, man. I would love well, to see that. The voice, right? There's that that sim- those very mellifluous tones. Mm. Uh, you know, you could listen to either one of them read the phone book. Mm-hmm. And uh, Irons also has that somewhat cadaverous look, but particularly the the Lovecraft that sorry the Lovecraft the Freudian slip uh, <laughs> the, the Karloff of the uh, 30s and 40s had. <laughs> For the record, let it be known that I was not the first <laughs> person to bring up Lovecraft on the show. I'm just saying. <laughs> not this time, anyway. All right, card number two. Which movie do you prefer, Tarantula or Them? Oh, come on. <laughs> well, I guess I'm going to go with Them, but boy, that's a tough one. That's, you know, it's, it's almost neck and neck, but uh, Them is certainly the one that I've watched and taught the most often. It's such an important movie, I think, not just for it being ground zero of the big bug movies, but also I find for being this very eerie transition between film noir and science fiction horror. 
because it comes out just around the time that it's sort of the end of the peak period of the noirs. Hmm. And like I like seeing it in conjunction with Kiss Me Deadly because it, that one also is a kind of bridging film. And that first half hour of them, it feels like it's going to be a noir. And then suddenly giant ants. So, <laughs> uh, and you know, the, the title's got that paranoia embedded into it. So there's just, there's so much to love about them. I'm going to go with that. Wow. I hadn't really considered that, but you're absolutely right about the film noir elements in there. See, that's why I love playing this game with people. It gives me new things to think about, too. <laughs> Card number three, if you had to colorize one universal monster movie, which one would it be? Oh, that's a sin. I know, but that, if yeah. you had to do one. <laughs> oh, so, so, so saying none would be a wrong answer. Um, if one, one colorized universal uh, classic uh, uh, monster film, well, why don't we go with Murders in the Rue Morgue? I mean, oh. I'm just... That's just pulling it out of the air. I don't want to go with any of the Frankenstein films because I love the gray tinge of the, uh, the corpse look mm -hmm. that Karloff's monster has. Going with color and murders in the Rue Morgue, if, especially if we could go, let's say, like a kind of two-strip technicolor, giving it the kind of look that we got from Mystery of the Wax Museum. Oh, yeah. I could, yeah. maybe. There you go. There we go. We just found a workaround to the whole, it's a sin to colorize. There we go. I like it a lot. I like that a lot. All right, card number four. Oh, this one's going to be tough, too. Colin Clive or Peter Cushing? Oh, Peter Cushing. Yeah? Peter Cushing. That one's a little bit easier because Cushing invests so much depth and layers into his uh, Victor Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And in, as we go through film after film, just how monstrous that character is. So he, But he's also, I think, fundamentally a more interesting character than Colin Clive's Henry Frankenstein. Okay. And final question, final card. What is your favorite John Carradine monster movie? Well, he's not technically a monster in Bluebeard, is he? I mean, if we, unless we're stretching that to include uh, psychopathic killers. I, we, we can take it. I mean, that's a great film. He searched for the beauty hidden in woman's heart. In his arms, many women were beautiful. But the flame of passion exposed the ugliness of their souls. Ugliness he destroyed. He searched on and on until he found Lucille. I want to tell you something that no other living person knows. Then maybe you'll understand how much I do love you. Then you think the owner of this cravat is a murderer? Very likely. Lucille! You couldn't do that to me. Not you, Lucille. And even if you could, I wouldn't let you. I wouldn't let you turn against me, too. Oh, no, not you, Lucille. Not you. <laughs> Quickly! Horror! Once again! There's so much going on there. You know, Omer manages to pull off a, a miracle in that film with uh, on, on a tiny, tiny budget. And Carradine's really giving his all in that. There's no phoning in that performance. And I think it's one of the more chilling performances that he turns in from that era. I think so. And I think Ulmer has a lot to do with that. Ulmer's not somebody I talk about enough here on this show, but what he was able to do, I mean, we all talk about the Black Cat as being amazing, but he did so much more. Uh, and even though he really wasn't given the opportunity to do a lot of really big prestige pictures, uh, after a while, uh, what he brought to the table is still stellar. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that was the classic five. And I know I said there are no wrong answers, but 
I still think you won. I still think you won. Okay. All right. I expect my prize any day now. Well, your prize is that you to be on Monster Kid Radio. So how about that? Well, that works just fine for me. (laughs) All right. So the movie we're going to talk about, it is a Karloff film. It's a movie that I hadn't seen in quite some time. So when I saw you post about it, I got really excited because it gave me an opportunity to, well, an excuse to go back and watch it again. We're talking about 1941's The Devil Commands. And this is... Just a wonderful era, a wonderful decade for Karloff. He did so much in the 40s. And this one is a slightly nuanced take on the mad scientist kind of role here. When was the first time you saw the film? Do you remember? Uh, That would have been, well, well over 10 years ago now. It was one that I had read about, uh, well, obviously for forever, but that I didn't get the opportunity to see until... The all the, the Karloff films started showing up on home video, mm-hmm. and I got to see them a lot of the earlier Columbia Mad Doctor films, like The Man They Could Not Hang, mm-hmm. a long time before I got to see The Devil Commands. So I don't know if, if that ever showed up on VHS during that period. I must have missed it. So it was when it finally showed up on DVD that I that I got a chance to see it, and it, it was a revelation uh, to me. I, I love all the the, the Karloff Columbia Doctor films, mm-hmm. but I think this one's easily the best. And the most chilling and the, I think the most interesting in the way that it subverts a formula that I find it striking how in the, in the space of five films, we get this microcosm or this, this tiny example of what uh, people have pointed out that happens with formula, right? A uh, film shows up uh, as a success, establishes a formula. We other films imitated, particularly in, say, let's say, a subgenre. It starts to wear out. Then you get the, the films that kind of subvert the form. And then finally, we move to parody, mm-hmm. right? And we get that in the space of, what, five films uh, <laughs> with, uh, with with the Karloff ones, right? The, the Man They Could Not Hang sets the uh, the formula. The Man with Nine Lives basically repeats the formula. Before I Hang, we're getting the diminishing returns there. You know, they, they don't even bother showing us the experiment going wrong. Uh, they just they cut straight to the trial in the opening scene. Right. And then you know, at the end, we get The Boogeyman Will Get You, which is the full-on parody. The Devil Commands, the second last one, that's the one that subverts and undermines and plays with the, the formula and takes it into some really interesting and dark directions. That's one of the reasons why I like this one so much is that it does seem to take some more chance chances with that mm-hmm. with that setup uh the, the way they do show the turn from just a guy trying to do science to well now we're gonna <laughs> go somewhere a little more dark with it and oh wait we're yeah. grave robbing by the way and then yeah <laughs> <laughs> which they just kind of throw in there which again i thought was yeah. a, a neat little play because a lot of times there's a lot to do made around the, we're gonna go rob the graves we're gonna get the bodies we're all that nope not in this film we just hit it and uh yeah here we go bunch of bodies in the basement yep six bodies stacked up in that lab or rather sitting around the table in that lab uh it's and it's kind of a chilling moment when you kind of realize well yeah okay they've gone to a lot lot of trouble to do this and it's it's pretty dark what they're getting up to Mm -hmm. even the the opening of the film one of the things that i love about it is the way that the devil commands assumes its audience has seen all these other films Right. It's like, okay, you know how these movies are going to start. Right. So we open in the lab and there's thunder going on and Karloff is about to perform an experiment on on an assistant. And we have a bunch of skeptical scientists there with him. So, you know, okay, yeah, it's all going to go wrong. The lightning's going to uh, short circuit his power supply or something. And that assistant is going to die. And it all goes fine. It's like, yeah, okay. All right. It works out. 
Yeah, no problem. And his wife shows up. Oh, uh, let me just put you in the thing and uh, show this to my friends. And you're going, oh, okay, now it's going to happen. You know, and he asks you, are you sure your hair is not wet? Oh, yeah, okay, you're totally, she's dead. She's toast. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen now. And then she's fine. <laughs> right? And so the, the whole opening, it breaks all the rules from the previous films. And then when she does die, it's so unexpected and such a banal tragedy, right? Just this one of these stupid little life things that goes wrong. She, she's in a car accident. Karloff isn't even in the car. He's buying a cake. He just steps out to see it. But it, it totally happens off screen. Yeah. It just it just happens. It's just a random thing yeah it's the, that kind yeah. of awful random tragedy that happens so often that it's, it's awful because that could happen to us right it's not like we're going to be get strapped into some mad scientist's gizmo and something weird is going to happen to us but rainy night something going wrong with your driving in an other, otherwise completely normal event you just dropped off someone to pick up a cake and you're driving around the block and something goes wrong oh yeah that could happen again it's a total subversion of what we've come to expect from these kinds of movies it was kind of refreshing yeah. When I finally saw this movie, and I couldn't tell you when I first saw it, it's just one of those movies that I, I know I've seen. I went through a tear of, of watching all those movies when I finally had access to them. So a lot of when I saw which movie kind of blurs together. Mm -hmm. But I do remember when I first saw this, I thought, okay, well, something terrible is going to happen. Oh, he just strapped his wife in. And that's a cool little device that he just, she just got strapped into. And she was, she's along for the ride. She's got no problem with it. This is clearly going to go wrong. Nope. Then I'm even more interested because why is this movie, why is Karloff in this movie if nothing's going wrong yet, you know? Yeah. And the funny thing is, too, that for all that nothing goes wrong in that opening scene, then everything goes wrong for everybody after that. And mm -hmm. I remember in uh, Dennis Gifford's book, he uh, when he talks about the devil commands and he says that Karloff tries to communicate with his dead wife and, and he fails. And for some reason that stuck with me, that uh, that description of, Karloff failing to communicate with his dead wife, which, which is not entirely accurate with what happens, but pretty close. And right. as I was thinking of this, I realized that this is a movie that is about failure, where every single character fails in what they seek to achieve, often very tragically. Karloff being the preeminent example, but uh, Mrs. Walters, I guess we'll be talking about more, more about her, but uh, she fails oh, yeah. in her uh, megalomaniacal schemes. Uh, the sheriff fails to prevent a, a mob from forming. The mob fails to get Karloff. His daughter fails to, to stop him from performing his experiment. Everybody fails all the way down the line. You mentioned uh, the, the failed medium yes. and... She's one of my absolute favorite characters in this film. Oh, she's amazing. Oh, she's great. I mean, she's kind of one note. I mean, she doesn't have a, a character arc per mm -hmm. se, and we really don't get to know her too well, but the presence that she has in the film is just amazing yeah. and uh, almost overwhelming sometimes. I mean, she overshadows Karloff at times, which is hard to do. Right, and she does so quite literally, too, in the, in the later stage after... Uh, she and Karloff have left the city and they're in the, the isolated house performing the experiments. And the sheriff comes by to, mm -hmm. to find out what's going on. And she and Karloff come down the stairs. And she stops a couple of steps up. Karloff goes past her. So we have this composition where Mrs. Walters is quite literally towering over both Karloff and the sheriff. Hers is the dominant presence and, and also the dominant personality. We see that Karloff is just following her orders. Uh, in in the latter part of the film. 
we're talking about an incredible actress, too. I mean, Anne Revere is the person who plays this, this role. And I mean, she's an Academy Award winner, uh, just an amazing performer. And what she brings to the table here is just stellar. I mean, this is a character that I would have loved to have known more about. I would have loved to have, like, read more stories with her, see more films with mm-hmm. this character up and well, it would have to happen before <laughs> this because, well, she doesn't make it to the end. But still, you know. I think one of the signs of, or one of the things about her performance that's uh, striking is the attention that she pays to the, the voice. Right? She's got a great voice. And, oh, yeah. and when she's in sort of full medium mode uh, when we first meet her and also later and when she's in, in control. Well, you could almost picture someone like Gail Sondergaard also doing this kind of role. But hmm. there's that moment after her when she's just being the fake medium. And Karloff exposes her tricks. And that rather aristocratic, portentous tone that she had slips. And her accent becomes harsher and, you know, much more the sort of almost like carnival barker kind of thing, right? And yeah. then, but then once uh, she is back in control, right? Because you know, she sees Karloff's invention if it succeeds as she says you'll own the world or words to that effect and so she mm-hmm. clearly has that very much on her mind and she becomes this again the, this very powerful physically imposing presence uh, she often has a sinister lighting on her face dressed entirely in black and that voice is back again and just like she was a fake medium that Karloff finds out and reveals to her that she's actually a real medium only she didn't know it it's as if that persona that she had at the beginning turns out to be the real persona later on. It's pretty stellar. It's, it's something. I mean, it really is something that, again, it's hard to upstage Karloff, yeah. and she does. And it's it's wonderful. It's just wonderful. Uh, she is not the only Academy Award winner involved with the film. The director of the movie won an Academy Award as well. Edward Dimitrik. Edward Dimitrik, yeah. Uh, he was also an Academy Award winner. And I don't know much about his career in the genre, but I get the impression he didn't do much in the in genre pictures per se. did a lot more uh, you know, in the 40s and 50s and such. I'm just not overly familiar with his career. Do you know much about him or do you, do you have any experience with him? No, uh, yeah, I think this is the uh, his one genre um, thing that, I'm, that I, I confess I'm most uh, familiar mm-hmm. with. You know, it's another one of these these names that uh, we are familiar with in, as Monster Kids because of what they did that was uh, closer to us. But I mean, he did yeah things like Crossfire and the Kane Mutiny, which uh, yeah, pretty big movies too. Oh sure, sure. And he was involved in the uh, like the Communist Scare. He was one of the Hollywood Ten, I believe. Uh, he right. he did actually serve time because he refused to name names, but then eventually did name names because he thought he was being kind of tricked by the communist party that sort of thing so there, there is some interesting real world hollywood stuff wrapped up with him but again i don't know much about it uh so I, i'm hesitant to say much more because i i just am ignorant of too much of that to really speak with any authority but yeah his film career dates back to uh the mid-30s and he was making movies up through the 70s a fairly broad period of time there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i love the aesthetic and, and the choices that he made with this film, again, with placing Anne mm-hmm. Revere above Karloff on that staircase, for example. We were talking about some film noir stuff earlier. I, I did pick up on some of that here, too, especially in the second half of the film, with how things are kind of lit and then the narration and everything. Yeah, well, yeah, the narration certainly, uh, I mean, we didn't get a lot of that in 
horror films, did we, from that period? I mean, there were a few others. Uh, one of the others from roughly the same, uh, actually, yeah, very close to the same year is uh, The Monster and the Girl, mm-hmm. where we get that kind of narration. And it, too, has that very strong proto-film noir look before it turns into mad science and horror. So, and yeah, I, I would agree, especially in the second half of the film, we get that familiar low-key lighting uh, that, well, that's certainly both noir and, and horror shared with each other. It feels like this nice fusion of the noir and the gothic in that second half. If you think of the other fusion that this film is doing, that the the other Mad Doctor films, what happens is still quote unquote scientific, right? It's uh, his blood's been corrupted by what he's injected into his veins, or right. uh, he's been you know he's been brought back to life thanks to a mechanical heart, and so on and so forth. This is the one that has out, the outright supernatural in it, so it's bringing those two forms together in a way that the other Mad Doctor films didn't. So it does have a, a sense of, uh, I, I mean, I can't believe I'm about to say this. It has a sense of reality <laughs> that you don't get with some of these other Mad Doctor films because you do have the supernatural stuff happening, and, or I'm sorry, the non-supernatural stuff happening. Uh, the other movie that I was going to mention that does have some of that narration is, it's not in black and white, it's a color film, A Scared to Death with Lugosi, where you have the uh, the corpse on the table talking about how she died. Oh, right, uh, yeah. Throughout the film. So, yeah. you know, a little bit of that there, too. But that was in 47, a few years after this. It's a good film. It's Lugosi, but quality-wise, I think The Devil Command yeah. beats it. I mean, of, of the uh, yeah, the five mad scientist-type films that Karloff did for uh, the studio, it was Columbia, right? Yes. Yeah. This one's my favorite, hands down. Yeah. I'm going to really, really dig this one. Yeah, mine too. And I, I certainly enjoy the other ones, particularly uh, The Man They Could Not Hang. But this one, it, it feels it goes that extra mile, especially as we move towards the climax and we see oh, yeah. the, the the actual experiment and this supernatural cyclone vortex uh, <laughs> thing you know, that emerges from the center of the table that's surrounded by these corpses that kind of lurch towards this vortex of nothingness that, that pulls things in and they disappear and that it, it seems that Karloff finally disappears into uh, based on what his daughter Anne says in her opening narration. But that is just something that I, I, I can't think of anything else from the 40s that has that look, that kind of supernatural manifestation. I mean, in some ways it, it, it looks forward to something like Poltergeist as far as that visualization of something from beyond there and that that's why i i said in that that facebook post uh, that of all certainly the mad doctor films this is the one that has that sense of cosmic horror right that it's it's not just that a science experiment gone wrong in fact uh, the problem is it's starting to go right and it really shouldn't <laughs> there's something really bad there as when we hear when he, when we start to hear his wife's voice is Julian. Uh, it's one of the creepiest voices this side of the Exorcist, right? And mm-hmm. the scientists at the beginning who are worried that well, they're not worried that so much. Oh, this is impossible. You're never going to do it. It's more well. What if you can do it? <laughs> what if the dead come through? That's not a good thing. And the film suggests that, no, it's not a very good thing. Uh, the, the, dead, the dead seem to kind of suck on the other side there. <laughs> yeah, you were saying that, and I was thinking at the very beginning of the film, one of the scientists flat out tells him there are some things that we're not supposed to figure out. Yeah. This is not something we should be trying to learn how to do. 
it's the traditional warning, right, about you know, meddling in things uh, that, that we should leave alone. We've got to go out and work that in at some point. But uh, mm-hmm. so we, it's, it's almost satisfying, right? It's almost like finally getting the, you know, shaken, not stirred moment in a Bond movie uh, when when someone uh, <laughs> gives us that that warning. It's redoubled by the other saying, well, what if what if the dead come through or what's there? What's on the other side? Uh, and and we're never told exactly. But with that very simple yet effective visual of the cyclone and the the disappearances and Anne's words at the end where she says that something reached out and took him, then mm-hmm. you, you're just, the film manages to imply all kinds of big, scary things and reaching to a, like I said, a very cosmic horror that the other Mad Doctor films are not interested in. in. And frankly, most of the other horror films from that period don't really go for that kind of thing. I had my little Lovecraftian Freudian slip earlier, but this, I think, is probably the film from that era that comes closest to verging on the kinds of horrors that Lovecraft was writing about. You know, the more that we talk about it, and, and I know you mentioned this on Facebook when we first you know, started talking about doing this film, I really do see more and more of that in there. Just the more we're talking about it, especially towards the end with the cyclone and everything else. What is the Lovecraft story uh, with the resonator? Oh, uh, from beyond. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one mm-hmm. that I'm starting to see yes. a lot of connections here. Yeah, yeah. No, I hadn't oh. thought of that, but no, you're absolutely right. If nothing else, just the visuals. Yes. You know, with with uh, the setup there at the end with all the bodies all strapped up to this machine, <laughs> which... It's an amazing visual, right? It's a great visual. I mean, we know it's a scientific thing. It's a lab thing. But I couldn't help but think, man, that also looks very ritualistic, the way they're all kind of set up in this circle. So even though he's doing science, there's still this sense of we know we're playing with something supernatural here just by the way things are kind of set up and constructed here. Absolutely. Oh, man. it just I'm literally uh, goosebumps right now. My arm hairs are standing on end just thinking about it because it's just so cool. Yeah, well, and, and you've just reminded me of that moment when he first brings Mrs. Walters back to the lab, and it turns out she really is psychic, much to her surprise. Mm-hmm. And he, he says to her, this is science. It has nothing to do with the occult. And, well, um, no, that's not true, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, not, not, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we looked at the end. I mean, you're right. It's that, that terrible fusion where we have all the scientific equipment, but... Yeah, we have six corpses strapped into the stuff, which is somehow amplifying a signal. Uh, you know <laughs> what? What is going on here? Yeah. And the uh, is and so his his statement that uh, has nothing to do with the occult is completely untrue, which is also something that you notice with so many of the things he says as he becomes more and more obsessed. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and that monomania we see already in that very happy, warm opening scene where his wife says that once he's in the lab, he forgets about time and people and everything. Right. He keeps forgetting important things because he's so focused. Right. Which at there, it just seems kind of charming and eccentric. And then it very quickly turns into something lethal as we go along. But right. he keeps telling people things that are categorically not true. He keeps telling them that the equipment is safe. It's not going to hurt them, right? Where they keep dying when they get into this. Well, yeah. What happened to poor Carl? I mean, yeah. that's not, you know, I mean, and I felt really bad for Carl. I appreciated that the film was kind of ambiguous. They so didn't flat out hit us over the head by saying, yeah, this really messed up Carl. 
we, yeah. we just kind of get to infer that from the performance, from the character and how he's treated and that sort of thing. I don't think Carl really even speaks all that much after he gets in the machine the one time, does he? No, he's he's mute after that. And uh, Karloff yeah. says something to the effect that the, there's been damage from the electricity. And I mean, when Karloff gets him in and says, here, uh, the, you know, this this won't hurt you. And, and, and he fires up the equipment. The moment he flips the switch, we see that Carl's in distress. Right. And Karloff just doesn't even never looks at him. He, he wouldn't even know if uh, anything had happened if the power hadn't shorted out. So yeah. and then that that change from Carl to he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he's uh, comes across as a very genial, nice guy. And some of the the first part of the film, he feels kind of like just he's got almost a Lou Costello vibe to him. Right. And then yeah, the second yeah. half, he's the hulking henchman. And the because that's the other thing that happens in this film, right, is transformation. Everybody's transforming. And uh, Karloff uh, says uh, that once he starts getting signals from his wife, he says she has passed through a change we call death. And then from that moment on, everyone else changes. So Carl becomes the the hulking henchman. Mrs. Walters becomes Darth Vader, basically. Uh, <laughs> Karloff becomes uh, this disheveled, unkempt, distracted uh, figure, unrecognizable from the very professional, well-kept gentleman he was uh, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So that, working all along with all the, these, uh, these, these transformations, uh, sorry, the transformations and the failures, and then that weird fusion of science and the supernatural and Karloff's insistence that everything is safe, right? And, and he keeps saying that to his, finally to his daughter. Don't worry, I'll turn it off. There's something that starts to be dangerous. So we don't trust him at all to do that because he hasn't no. once. <laughs> yeah, I felt really bad for Carl. I thought the performance was solid here, mm-hmm. too. He's credited as Ralph Penny, but that wasn't his real name. Uh, he used a couple of different names. I don't have them written down here in front of me, but he used a couple of different names in a couple of different films over the years. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned Karloff. I know that I kind of raved about Anne Revere and how she towers over Karloff in this film. I don't want to take anything away from Karloff here. No. He does, while we don't necessarily see the, tr- the transition because there is a, a time jump about halfway through the film, he still plays two very distinct character types with this character yes uh you know very warm very loving loves his wife loves his daughter can't wait to see the daughter gonna go get her a cake you know just very kind of a, a nice guy and then yeah. he spent way too much time in the lab yeah but i mean those opening scenes between uh him and his wife there's obviously such a loving couple right And the little exchanges in the car as they're driving you just feel so awful when, when the tragedy does strike right because yeah. it, it's it's this little glimpse of a, a kind of domestic bliss that we hardly ever saw with uh, Karloff in those roles in that period, right? Most of the time, yeah, he seems to be, yeah, he almost always has a daughter, but we don't know where the wife is if uh, if, uh, <laughs> if she's ever alive, <laughs> right? Uh, but here we do see that, and it's so lovely, and it hurts all the more when it all goes wrong. And she doesn't sound very nice when she comes back. No, no, and that's something that. I did wonder about the film because as soon as he tells his buddies, you know, we're trying to pierce the veil, there's not that sense of, oh, wow, this would be exciting. Let's talk to the dead. They immediately go to, it's evil. Don't do it. (laughs) Yes. You know, what do they know that we don't other than, (laughs) you know, the movie's called The Devil Commands. (laughs) But they immediately go to that. And uh, yeah, they do play with that. And I've been doing a lot of work with sound lately. I think I've talked about that here on the show quite a bit, doing like sound for like short films and things. And uh I really respond well to really cool sound design, and this film's got it. 
oh, especially space. towards the end. Oh, yeah. Man. That sound of her voice, I think, is is one of the most chilling sounds from that decade. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, or at least I would put it, it's a it's a, a sound design that could hold its own with along with the, what we would wind up getting with the Val Luton films, uh, which, you know, just Ooh. knock it out of the park as far as sound design is concerned. But that julian sound uh, there yeah that's that's real goose pimply stuff yeah it is and i just like the overall look of the film you know i talked a little bit about the film noir ish kind of influence here uh another person that i really liked in the movie though i really liked the character of the sheriff Mm. Uh, sheriff willis played by kenneth mcdonald again it feels like it's subverting the expectation he's not a guy who's going to go in there and shut the whole thing down because he knows something bad's going on no he comes across as this look, Julian, I just want to get these guys off your back. Yeah. Let's just check it out. I'm your friend. It's really kind of this warm, or at least he's trying to set up a warm relationship with him. Yeah. You know, the, the medium's not too down with that, but yeah, you know, I really appreciated that too. It's a, an interestingly low-key performance, isn't it, right? He's always very calm. He's conscious of the fact that he's sitting on a powder keg here and this whole town mm-hmm. could explode. And you're right. He's doing everything he can to make things better. Mm-hmm. And and he makes all the right moves, right? It just, it just it all blows up in his face too, but quite literally. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I I agree. It's another uh, nice touch and one that yeah again feels to me a little bit different from the usual run. Yeah, it's it's different. You don't get this kind of approach. And again, that's something that I really love about the film and one of the reasons why I prefer this one to all the other ones that Karloff did at the time. I love The Boogeyman Will Get You. Don't get me wrong. I love that film. It's just oh. it's just goofy. It's fun. It's lighthearted. And it's just great. Peter Lorre and that random cat. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's great. I love it. But this has that, you said cosmic horror. I can't get away from thinking about that now. This one definitely has it in spades. You know, I, I participate in the Lovecraft Film Festival up here in Portland. And every year I try to submit panel ideas and presentations, trying to figure out a way to work my love for classic horror and being a monster kid into my fandom of Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. I've never thought about bringing this film up, but now I want to. <laughs> As soon as we get done chatting, I'm going to shoot him an email and say, hey, have you ever considered this film? Because this one, it delivers. I don't know what else to say here. I know this kind of turned into a, boy, we love this film. Wasn't it cool when (laughs) kind of conversation? But I don't know what else to say other than, listeners, you got to see this film. You just got to see it. (laughs) I think it's a film that rewards multiple viewings. And Mm -hmm. the way that the... So the, the film builds on so there's so many details, so much foreshadowing in the first bit that that comes back in the the, the latter half. And I have to say, there's watching it again the, before we we talked about it. Of suddenly seeing, oh wow, like the, the way that this thing is structured, how it manages to give us the sense of just the kind of stupid accidents that can ruin people's lives, but at the same time, this terrible inevitability, right? And Anne in her narration saying it, it wasn't uh, Carl's fault that Mrs. Walters became such a terrible uh, influence uh, and all these terrible things happened. She doesn't know whose fault it is. And in many ways, it doesn't seem to be anyone's exactly, uh, though Karloff's obsession d- definitely is the engine. And how, so we, we get to the, this ending where nobody is really trying to do any harm, and yet all these terrible things have happened. And... What you were saying about uh, the the way that she that Mrs. Walters dominates uh, Karloff, which is completely true, 
Mm-hmm. And I, I also find it interesting, though, that as weak physically as Karloff has become in the second half of the film, right? You know, Mrs. Walters looks like she could you know, take on everyone with one hand tied behind her back, right? You know, she's just so <laughs> yeah. menacing, right? And, mm-hmm. and she's the one who's giving the orders. And he follows. He does exactly what she says, except when it comes to the experiment. Once he's flipping that switch and listening for his wife, he listens to nothing else. And even someone as formidable as Mrs. Walters is going to go down before the obsessed Karloff. Yeah, it's like once you get into the lab, that's his domain. He, the roles are going to shift no matter how in control she might be outside the lab. Once you get in the lab, she's subservient. He's the one you got to listen to. He's the one that kind of takes over and straps everybody into the machine. Yeah, without any regard to anything else, right? He's Right. He's, he, he, he's so completely focused that he does even when his own daughter is in danger all he can do is listen for his wife everything just kind of compresses into that one room and that's all he does that's all he cares about again that goes to Karloff though too I mean the man was a master I mean the guy was so much more than just the Frankenstein's monster I know that's what we know him for as monster kids but once you start exploring his filmography, whether it's a genre film or, or something that wasn't necessarily as, as genre, I mean, the man was just a master. And yeah, if he told me to sit down in that machine and strap in, I probably would, just because it's Karloff. I mean, I wouldn't have well, any yes. choice, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, he's like, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. It won't hurt. All right. Uh, cool. You sound entirely reasonable. I mean, if Bela Lugosi was telling me to do that, it's like, oh, no, hang on here. <laughs> Yeah, so if Lugosi tells us to get involved, we say no. But if the Grinch tells us to do it, we're, we're on board. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that uh, something about the music, just because I'm a film score guy, and I think every episode of Monster Kid Radio, I have to say something about the film scores. Uh, the music in this is serviceable. Nothing really kind of stood out to me on this one uh, in terms of the film score by Morris W. Stoloff. It just feels like, yeah, you know. Monster movie music. It gets the job done. Nothing really kind of stood out for me. Yeah, exactly. Just kind of got the job done. Everything else, though, really does seem to kind of come together in this nice, spooky, chilling way. I guess the movie's based on a book. Have you read the novel? Yes, uh, The Edge of Running Water by William Sloan. It must be about 20 years since I... No, no, no not quite that long, but uh, uh, more more years than I care to think of since I read it. Okay. And I think the, the film is recognizable. The, the, we have a narrator there who's uh, another scientist who is trying to find out what, uh, the, what Julian Blair is getting up to. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm drawing on a very, very hazy memory. So, but I think the... The overall idea of the of using science to uh, speak to the dead, that is definitely uh, true to the novel. It's pretty typical of you know, film adaptations. I mean, even today, but in that era, to adapt a, a novel or a story as a film, lots of liberties were taken, lots of changes were made. I would love to read the mm-hmm. book just to kind of get even more of it. I'm, I'm interested. Um, I don't know if the book's available right now or not in print, but I don't think it's in print, but there's still, I've seen copies floating around on Amazon. It's sure. still, it's uh, it's findable right on. Well, I'll definitely read it and get back to you and let you know what I thought when I finally read it. But Oh yeah, yeah, please do. Cause yeah, it's been so long since I read it. I think it's kind of neat too, that we have a case where, I mean, the book has a great title, the edge of running water mm-hmm. and it gets changed into the devil commands. And well, that's a pretty amazing title also. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and even the movie poster is so cool. When the devil commands Karloff obeys, 
That's wonderful, man. It is. And I was thinking about that uh, the other day after I knew we were going to be talking about this. And it was occurring to me that, that the devil in this question seems to be that Karloff's obsession. Mm-hmm. Right? That that's the devil that's commanding. Uh, the easy view on that is that, well, it's it's the medium. She's telling him what to do. But no, it goes so much further than that. It, it really is that obsession yeah. that I'm going to talk to my dead wife. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to it. I'm commanded to do so. It's a wonderful yes. title. It is. As an aside, I have to say that possibly the greatest title of them all still, I think, has to be Shh, the Octopus. Because I mean, I just don't know how you can beat that. <laughs> uh, but The Devil Commands comes pretty close. The octopus has come up multiple times here on the show, and I've never seen it. Oh, you must. Oh, you it must. It sounds like I need to. I, I uh, showed it to my uh, uh, my stepkids uh, a year or so ago, and they didn't know what hit them. Uh, they, they're they still trying to forget some of the images in that film. <laughs> and, uh, oh, it's, it's, it's on the syllabus for my course this fall. You'd better believe it. Partly so I can say that I taught a film called Shh, The Octopus, but also because of some of the stuff that goes on in there. You think you're watching a fairly standard comedy horror old dark house film it's just in an old dark lighthouse instead of uh, a house but oh man does it go into places you didn't think it was going to go so oh you are in for a treat <laughs> well when i do watch it i'll let you know and maybe we even have you come back to talk about it what do you think i would love to oh and i, I just i i can't wait to hear uh, <laughs> what you think i'm i'm giggling in anticipation oh uh, you with your jaw on the ground <laughs> Right on. Well, is there anything else you'd like to talk about the movie before we wrap up? No, I think we did pretty well there. Yeah, I again, listeners, highly recommend it. Check it out. I know we spoiled it, but we always do here on the show. It's a wonderful film. It is spooky. It's got that cosmic horror that, well, I respond well to. So, and and I, I hope you do, too, if you listen to the show. Uh, it's just really a fun film uh, with some great performances and... If nothing else, man, I want to hang out in that lab for a little while. That was a that was a cool set. It is. It really yeah. is. <laughs> one of the questions in the Classic Five, one of the questions is, you know, what movie set would you want to hang out in for a day? And I, I've never really considered it. But, uh, yeah, this is one. I'd love to just see all that and kind of play around with that. I don't want to get strapped in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if Karloff tells me to, I'll do uh, it. Oh, yeah, I'll... but we know safety belts can give, as we see. <laughs> That's right. At least there are safety belts. At least there's that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's paying some lip service to uh, <laughs> basic safety precautions. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Whatever, Karloff. <laughs> nice. Well, David, where can people find you online? Do you have a website, uh, a landing page for all of your books, anything like that? DavidAnandale.com, okay. which I actually should be kind of, should be updated. But they can also find me on Twitter at David underscore Annandale. I will make sure there's a link in the show notes to your website. And do you have any books or anything coming up any projects that you want to talk about or let people know about? I've got two books in October coming oh, out. Wow. Uh, one is uh, The Dominion of Bones, which is a uh, fantasy novel with the uh, vampire queen Neferata uh, set in the uh, Age of Sigmar universe of the, the Warhammer series. Okay. And the other is a novel for the Warhammer horror line. This is The House of Night and Chain, and it's set in the Warhammer 40,000 universe and is a full-on haunted house novel. Really quite excited about Now, the Warhammer 40,000 or 40k, that's the more sci-fi 
bend is that right yes and then the warhammer is more the the gritty sword and sorcery style yeah yeah age of sigmar is what they rebooted it as a few years back so that's sword and sorcery epic fantasy okay. warhammer 40,000 is the uh, uh the, the science fiction uh setting the extremely bleak dystopian future with uh, with all, all kinds of sort of cosmic evil uh, semi-lovecraftian gods screwing around with everybody it's uh, it's not a nice place to live but it's a lot of fun to visit and you're going to make it even more bleak by telling a haunted house story in it <laughs> One of the things that I love about the Warhammer universe is, is uh, they're this kind of one-stop shopping for all the genres that I love. And uh, particularly in, in 40K, where you've got the science fiction and horror and military and everything can go into this this uh, fusion of genres, which you, there's no end to the stories you can tell there. And so it's been a natural fit, I think, for the, uh, the Warhammer horror line. And the way that it, the Age of Sigmar universe has been developed over the last few years also is, invites no end of, of storytelling possibilities. It's fa- high fantasy. There's a really, really strong element of horror that's present there. And we've got monsters coming out of our ears in all of these universes. So one of the books I, I wrote, The Damnation of Pythos, I basically got to bring in some kaiju in that. I mean, I've got some you know, 200-foot dinosaurs showing up. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's a wonderful playland for me. <laughs> I uh, considered bringing up Godzilla because while I was doing a little bit of research before the show, you know, I, I kind of cyberstalk our future guests. And, and I did stumble across <laughs> a website where somebody said, if you want to laugh, just ask David about Godzilla, but I, I chose not to oh. do that because I didn't want to derail the conversation. <laughs> uh, but maybe down the line, we'll have you back on to talk about a Godzilla film or something as, as well, because I love chatting with you. I can't imagine not having you back on. Oh, that would be wonderful. You know, Godzilla's my guy. I blame him for everything that I do now <laughs> <laughs> or, or give him credit for it. Perhaps yeah, be yeah, a better maybe that's a better way to put it. <laughs> Right on. Well, David, thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. Listeners, check out what he's got coming up. Yeah, and if you're in the area, enroll in his classes. I bet they're fun. (laughs) Do it for me because I can't. (laughs) Welcome to Planet 8. Every two weeks, the crew at Planet 8 Podcast explores the many worlds of science fiction, fantasy, superheroes, monsters, and more. We cover the latest movies and TV shows, as well as old favorites, too. Yeah, like Planet of the Apes. It's a manhouse! A manhouse! Hey, guys, don't forget Star Trek. Fascinating. Or classic monsters like King Kong, Creature from the Black Lagoon, or Godzilla. <laughs> If it's nerdy or geeky, we'll probably be talking about it. So why don't you tune in and check us out? You can find us on iTunes or other fine podcast providers. Come join the conversation at our website, planet8podcast.blogspot.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. This is Planet 8 Podcast, signing off and transmission. Bigfoot is more than a legend. Something that walks upright like man is stalking our forests. Something is leaving huge, unexplainable footprints all over the face of our earth. The legend of McCullough's Mountain. Filmed in color where it happened. The legend of McCullough's Mountain. They swear to God it's true. Rated G. Ladies and gentlemen, here is an important message from Jack H. Harris. Producer of 4D Man. Imagine a check for $1 million being made out to you. In my new film, you will see 4D Man perform feats never seen on the screen before. And if you, 
Any one of you listening to me can actually perform in real life the feats ascribed to 4D Man. One million dollars in cash will be yours. Your admission ticket to see 4D Man in widescreen and color may be worth one million dollars. 4D Man is the most amazing motion picture ever made. The story of one man who solved the mystery of the fourth dimension. Even in this century of wonders, when science holds nothing to be impossible, you'll gasp in awe at the feats of the 4D Man. In color to thrill you as never before, 4D Man. Action you've never seen races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture making Carnival of Souls. This is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. But try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the Carnival of Souls. She is a girl driven mad by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. Honey. You don't want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the Carnival of Souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. Carnival of Souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Carnival of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. You haven't heard him on Monster Kid Radio in a while, but uh, he's out there. He's, he's there. He's listening. He's, he's, he's here now. It's Jeff. What's up, man? Hi. Here tonight to see Carnival of Souls. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is uh, at least my third time seeing it here at the Joy. Really? Yes. And it is absolutely one of my favorite horror movies. Wow. Now, I reached out to you on Facebook earlier today asking if you were going to be here, and you were very enthusiastic, like, oh, yeah, you got to see it. Um, what's the first time you saw it here at the Joy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah. In fact, I don't think I've ever watched it on the small screen. I've only seen it here. Oh, nice. What is it about this that, that draws you in, that appeals to you so much? Uh, you know, for all of my meta knowledge that it's an amateur production, it is done so professionally. The shots are just incredible. The transitions are amazing. And the plot is just so creepy. 
Uh, you, you said that the writer went and watched a bunch of Twilight Zones before he uh, wrote it, and that's absolutely believable. Uh, I've compared this to being uh, having a Shyamalan-style ending before M. Night Shyamalan was even born. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just I love this movie so much. Uh, George Romero went on record uh, in, I believe, 97 in an interview with Variety saying that this movie influenced Night of the Living Dead for him. Okay. And I could totally see that. Totally yeah. see the connections there. Um, now, you know who the director is in the film, right? Uh, yeah, Herc. Yeah. And, and he's the man. Yeah, okay. Because yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to say anything during the while I was introducing the film, which I'm probably not going to play here on this episode because I just wasn't on my best game anyway uh, but during the intro yeah i was talking about how twilight zone um definitely has some twilight zone elements and, and you mentioned m night earlier i can see that i suppose yeah yeah okay it, it's definite twist ending it does but let's ask dominique lamsey's what she thinks of the ending because she's here right now what do you think of the ending of the movie okay i feel like i'm put on the spot for the middle of a conversation i wasn't part of I, I, it's great. I love it. <laughs> now, I know that Dominique loves this movie, um, but you told me this is the first time you saw it on the big screen? Yes. Oh, was, wow. I know. I, I couldn't believe it myself, but I was like, oh, you know, I don't think I have. But yeah, I knew, I knew you liked the movie because uh, you've written something kind of comparing your own kind of background as a horror fan and being, you know, one of us to this film and, and that'll be placed at some point, hopefully because it's a wonderful piece. But what is it about the movie that just kind of resonates with you? Okay. The kind of the, the screwed up thing that I shouldn't actually be admitting aloud is that, uh, Mary Henry is probably the fictional character I relate to the most. (laughs) Really? Yes. Do you, do you want to elaborate on that? Um, I have problems relating to people. Yeah, I okay. I, I like dead people more than living people. <laughs> um, unfortunately, like Lyndon, the neighbor, is pretty much how I view every guy who hits on me, <laughs> which may or may not be objective. <laughs> well, okay, we're monster kids, and and growing up, the interests that we had kind of made us outsiders. So I totally see a lot of that. I don't identify with the character because, well, I'm not a woman, and I, I haven't been hit on the way uh, the neighbor hits on her, which is just really creepy. But I can see where you're coming from on that too. And you're not dead. And, and I'm not dead. There, there yeah. is that. I mean, despite the fact that Dominique seems to kind of like me and all, I'm not dead. <laughs> <laughs> that you know of. Oh, okay. Derek's twist ending. Oh, okay. So I want to talk about the, I want to talk about the twist ending because, okay. There, there's been a oh boy, there, there's been a lot of talk about this film and, and what it means and the story and the twist and all that. I struggle because I know she's dead the whole time. I get that. At least that's what I think we're supposed to believe. But mm-hmm. if that's the it's got some pesky point of view violations for me, and I really struggle with that part. Meaning that if this is all in her head and she's dead and all that, then why are we getting scenes that don't involve her? Why are we seeing any of these things? Because these things wouldn't be happening if it's all. I don't know. I just I don't know if I'm making much sense oh, here. I, I don't think it's all in her head. I think that some part of her 
her strong will that she talks about, she in a way survives and is interacting with the world until finally she fades into the carnival. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So she's... Hmm. She's so strong willed she's not admitting she's dead. She can't admit it to herself. That makes her? Mm. A ghost. Yeah. This is a ghost story. Yeah. That's all it is. And also, because she doesn't realize she's a ghost, she presents herself as human, which means anyone who would see her, because people do see ghosts, would still interact with her and still make decisions based on what they have seen. So things not directly involving her would happen because of her presence, because people think she's still there. What's the significance of the bird being what kind of ends the spell where people can't see and hear? Have you guys thought or read or heard anything like I, I don't know if there's like a folklore thing I'm missing well we don't see the specific bird but some birds uh, uh, are thought to like carry souls um, and I so I, I, I've seen the dark half I know how that works yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's specifically what I was thinking of was like in the dark half mm-hmm. so that was that's the connection I put with it but there is also this specific bird. I don't. I don't think it's this one, but the whippoorwill, because the yeah. sound of the well, whippoorwill that's the is that's the dark half. okay. Yeah, I've never seen the dark half, but yeah, the sound of the whippoorwill is associated with the dead. The dark half, directed by George Romero, who says nine eleven dead was embodied by this, so it all comes back around. See how I did that? That's that's that's, that's me being good. Well, keep in mind that was also based on a Stephen King. Uh, well, whatever. Book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't really notice that the bird is what kind of snaps her back into being able to be heard until I saw it on the big screen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've seen this here on the big screen, even though he's played it a couple of times. I've got it on disc. I mean, it's Criterion release for crying out loud. And, and I talked about it on Monster Kid Radio years ago with Rich Chamberlain. Um, but I don't think I've seen it since. So there are a lot of things in here that I didn't remember. Um I knew he was a creep, but I didn't remember the neighbor being so creepy. Oh, he's, he's such a cad. Uh, if I were to remake this movie, I would want to do like the remake of Psycho and do it, you know, as close to the original as possible, but I would not make John such a cad. <laughs> That's because you're a guy. Huh? Maybe, but uh, it's easy for us, I think, as an audience to dismiss him. For, for Mary to be dismissing him because he's such a creep. And I think it would uh, show her isolation more if he actually wasn't such a creep and she still wasn't interested. Okay, hold on. <laughs> I actually, I, I can't necessarily agree with that, but it is a female experience thing. Yeah. Um, Which I admit to not having. And part of it is actually, okay, if you remade it to where it was like now... I'm more, I'm more on your side, but in keeping with the time period in which it was made, okay, it was, even if a guy was like that, it was necessary for you to interact and still have that back and forth with him. Ugh. Like nowadays it's, yeah, yeah, nowadays that, <laughs> but back then it didn't matter because you were nasty and a spinster and you still needed a guy, even if he was like peeping Tom, you. <laughs> uh, no, that's fair. I mean... And that's, 
and I've said this to you before off mic, and I think I've said it on the show too, is that one of the things that I like about our, our friendship is that you do bring a point of view that I cannot and will never have to a lot of, of the things that we both enjoy, these monster movies, fiction, whatever. Um, so I appreciate you for that, and I appreciate that point of view, and I think you're absolutely right. I agree with her that, yeah, back then you just you're a single woman, you know, there's a single guy, you've got to, you know, then just, ugh, like, like you did. Blah, Jeff. Blah, yeah, absolutely. You know. um, yeah, yeah. Apparently, and I've not seen the remake, but that actor is the only actor who returns for the remake. Um, he's like a, he was like a, a drama professor. Really? Actor, yeah, he's like a professional actor. Classes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know if we saw his best acting in this. I don't know if we saw anybody's best acting in this, but it was all functional, and because uh, it does have this kind of weird kind of vibe to it, it's okay if people seem a little stagey or stiff. There were a couple of times when I noticed that, yeah, maybe they just said action before the camera started rolling, and they start, you know, I, I don't know. There's some weird filmmaking things that I noticed, but, you know, the guy was... Uh, a get in there and shoot an industrial film kind of guy. So, you know, I don't know. I just, I love the film. I, I adore this film. And uh, the bulk of this episode is actually about another movie altogether. So I don't want to really focus too much more on Carnival of Souls. But is there anything else you want to say before I hit stop? If I could remake a classic movie to get it seen by a newer audience, this would be it. And not, you know, you talked about the, what was it, 98? The, the remake, it's not a remake. It's the same title. Oh, really? But the plot okay. has nothing to do with the same. Have you seen it? Yes. I have not seen it. I have no interest in seeing it. Uh, if if I had the money to remake it, I would want to do it properly. I'm not even going to ask you about the remake. <laughs> because I can't talk about it without swearing. And, you know, we don't like the, the explicit exactly. tag on MKR. <laughs> anyway, anything else you want to say? So... If the day ever comes when I get married, as per a dream I had a couple months ago, I'm having a Carnival of Souls theme reception and everybody's invited. Okay, Just FYI. So, uh, white makeup, but black around the eyes? Only for the, bridesma- wearing, only for the bridesmaids black? and the groomsmen, okay. because the first dance is going to be Sansane's Dance Macabre. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Tell me you'll play the soundtrack for this. The music from this will appear in the wedding somewhere. I'll probably be like marching down the aisle to this. Because yes! I, I have like I have like specific like music requirements as per my dream. Okay, fair enough. So so we've talked about the movie, we've talked about Dominic's future wedding. I'm good, man. You? Which doesn't seem likely since uh uh, any man hitting on her comes across as a creep. So. No, well. <laughs> no, this is perfectly legit, and I do realize this, but you know, there's still the girly part of me that dreams. Aww. When modern Navy scientists defy the unknown mysteries of the past, perpetuated by centuries of native belief, then nature strikes in all its vengeance in. Barath, the unbelievable. For generations, the legend was passed on. They said Baran was there, deep in the still water. They said, let Baran sleep. That lake water is going to be contaminated after we finish the tests. It'll probably affect the fish, too. We just can't take any chances. But those people have depended on their lake for their livelihood all their lives. And their parents before them. Anna, now should we be this concerned about a handful of people 
when we might perfect something that could benefit all mankind. Hmm? All right, Jim. But the Navy commander would not heed their warning. He moved forward, ever searching, ever probing, deeper and deeper, until it was too late. Veron rose from the depths slowly, unrelentingly, to wreak its vengeance on a civilization that wanted to know too much. Tumultuous, terrifying. So awesome it will shock you to the core. Buran, the unbelievable. This may be what we've been listening for for the past four years. At last, contact with another planet, but it's really contact with nightmare. From out of this world, from out of the vast, frightening unknown, come the Terranauts. Something came out of the sky, picked the building up bodily and, and tore it out of the ground. One moment on solid from near Earth, the next kidnapped into an enemy world. will be destroyed or driven into caves like savages unless we can do unless we stop this enemy first we must wait till we're within range you'll thrill to the most fantastic intergalactic battle ever a warring asteroid challenged by a handful of humans a million miles out in space determined to save the Earth from the Terranauts. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I hope you've enjoyed everything that you heard this time around. I want to say big thank you to David Annandale for the conversation we had about the Devil Commands. He brought up some points that I hadn't considered before on Facebook and then further uh, solidified those opinions. Well, just the conversation is great. You guys heard it. It was awesome. Check out David's books. I'm going to make sure that uh, his name and books will be added to the book club list. So if you want to help support fellow monster kids and read some great fiction, well, that's where you want to go. Let's go to the book club listing on monsterkidradio.net. Follow the links and buy the books that way. Not only do you get some awesome books, but you also help support Monster Kid Radio because we are an Amazon affiliate. Speaking of the website, monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. Our contact information is there. You can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail if you have any comments about this episode or anything that we've talked about here on the show over the past 432 episodes. By the way, big thanks to Jeff Pierre, Dominique Lamsey's, and Jeff Punk Rock Martin for the Carnival of Souls experience that we had this time around, kind of running as a B story through this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I hope you enjoyed the little bits that we talked about Carnival of Souls there. You know, it's kind of spur of the moment. wasn't exactly planned out in advance, but still fun, and I'm not going to turn down an opportunity to see one of my favorite public domain 
monster movies from the 60s. It's just a solid film. So good. So good. Anyway, everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio, you're going to find in the show notes. Like I said, it's at monsterkidradio.net. I am driving home with the lavalier mic on, so if I forget anything or sound like I'm kind of stumbling over my words or rambling or whatever, well... You guys and gals know what's up. You know you can find me on Facebook. You know you can find the Facebook page and the Facebook group by just looking up Monster Kid Radio or even the Twitter. Twitter.com slash Monster Kid Radio or even YouTube. YouTube.com slash Monster Kid Radio. Those are social media outlets. That's how you can get a hold of us. And keep an eye out for me on Reddit. I've started to use Reddit a bit more. Uh, Monster Kid Radio is my username over there. And I do follow a handful of different podcast Reddit threads. So you can see me over there and Bill Mize, friend of the show, is also over there. Bill watches movies. Awesome podcast. Check it out. Coming up this upcoming weekend on Saturday, if you are in the Portland, Oregon area and you have tickets, you can meet me and, well, Kenny's going to be here too for the Movies by Minute. I guess it's an event. Uh, not really a convention, but from 12 to 5 on Saturday at the Clinton Street Theater. All of us Movie by Minute producers and fans are going to be there and as you know i am the co-producer of the plan nine by nine podcast where we're taking a look at the movie plan nine from outer space nine minutes at a time the other co-producer is recovering from heart surgery scott morris and well it's been a lot of fun and i cannot wait to uh, meet some other movie by minuteers at this event and if you're going to be there i'd love to meet you there as well Remember on September 13th at Rose City Comic Con, David Heath is going to have a panel there. I'm going to be a panelist with him talking about horror impacting modern comics. That's going to be a blast. And now, uh, you know, the Kickstarter campaign has been launched for the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con. Victoria Price, we knew was going to be a special guest. She's awesome. But uh, if you look at the Kickstarter video, Roger Corman is going to be here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. That's going to be a real treat. I cannot wait for this Lovecraft Film Festival. It's going to be a lot of fun. Roger Corman, man. Roger freaking Corman. I'm almost home, so I want to once again thank you for listening. Come back next week to uh, get even more classic monster modern talk content. Check out the What's Playing This Month. Check out the What's Coming Up This Month video on YouTube to see what will be happening next week on Monster Kid Radio. Otherwise, I'll just see you back here in seven days. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, it doesn't apply to the song Monster Beat. That belongs to the band The Viking Surfers, which is a cool surf band based out of Washington. The album is called Greetings from the Viking Surfers, and you can find them at thevikingsurfers.bandcamp.com. Go check them out. Check out the entire album and let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.